Uh, we've been naming some of the really difficult things that tend to come up in life. This has been our Lenten practice to name the difficult things, but also uh, to be on the hunt for the beauty that might be hiding within them. So we started out of the gate and talked about mortality, this very real thing, this inevitability that's part of these lives that we often distract ourselves from, and we proposed that we might actually turn toward it and even embrace it and discover that somehow we are enlarged in every small act of dying, that something larger is waiting for us on the other side of that. We talked about doubt, about unknowing, about the possibility that letting go of some of the things that we are clinging to like white-knuckled with a kind of fragile certainty and moving through a kind of unknowing, a, a darkness of doubt, that that might actually lead us to a place where we can get our hands on reality in a more profound or, or deeper level. And we've talked about the difficult experience of simply realizing uh, that you're wrong. Uh, we call that conviction. And it's not necessarily a welcome feeling, but there's a possibility hidden there, which is that God has actually turned toward you in that experience, that if you feel convicted, it might actually be a sign that God hasn't given up on who you are becoming, but is trying to help you turn around, and that seems really promising, right? Well, today we're going to uh, probe another one of these difficult experiences, because why not, right? <laughs> Let's keep going. Keep the good times rolling. Uh, to get into this, I want to look at a, another prayer from that ancient book that we looked at last week called the Psalms. This week, the psalm is Psalm 55. And uh, I'm not going to begin with the part of the psalm that specifies the, the kind of experience that's happening. I just want you to first feel the emotional content of what this writer is feeling. So this is the beginning of Psalm 55, where the, the psalmist writes, Listen to my prayer, O God. Do not ignore my plea. Hear me and answer me. My thoughts trouble me and I'm distraught. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen on me. Fear and trembling have beset me. Horror has overwhelmed me. I said, oh, that I had the wings of a dove. I'd fly away and be at rest. I'd flee far away and stay in the desert. I would hurry to my place of shelter far from the tempest and the storm. It's a pretty passionate emotional experience, right? Like this has all the marks of like college poetry, right? Like where everything's really dramatic. Uh, this person's experiencing horror, they say. They say, I want to escape this reality. I want to get out of this. And if you've ever been at a place where you look at your life and you say, I want to just get out of this experience, you know, those are really desperate moments. Those are really dark moments. Well, uh, in this case, the psalmist a little later names the specific thing that's creating these kind of feelings for them. And I think it's an experience that's close to most of our lives. So look a little further where we read this in the psalm. If an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If somebody from outside my camp were attacking me, I could handle that. If a foe were rising against me, I could hide. And now the psalmist turns their language to, to another person, the, the person who's causing this pain in their life. And they say, but it's you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship at the house of God as we walked about among the worshipers. This experience isn't just sort of generic hurt or attack, or somebody else wronging you. This is specifically when it comes from inside, when it's one of your own, when it's one of your people, one of your friends, one of your family members, somebody who was inside the lines that should have been safe. I think there's a word for this particular experience, and we're going to work it out today. The word is betrayal. Betrayal. 
that kind of traitorous thing when somebody that should have been safe, somebody who you thought was on your side or in your tribe, when they became the person who hurt you. Now, I know betrayal can feel like a really dramatic word. It's kind of like Shakespearean, right? Like, it can have that weight, or maybe it sounds like it's from a soap opera. Uh, but I actually think betrayal lives pretty close to most of our lives on a pretty regular basis. And experiences of this in our past or recurring experiences of in, in the present are, are really pretty prevalent, right? Especially if you, if you think about the framing, which is just that somebody that should have been trustworthy or for you turned out to not live up to that, right? Uh, a while ago, I was uh, on retreat with a, a mentor of mine. And we went to a Gregorian monastery. It was an Episcopal Gregorian monastery, which I didn't know was a thing. And we went there for a few days of retreat. And I went there thinking, like, this is going to be really good. I could use, like, a space to return to a deeper conversation with God than the one that I've been having. I could use a space to get freshly grounded, to feel a little more connected. And so I go there honestly thinking I might be levitating by 7 p.m., right? Like, I mean, there's monks there for Pete's sake, right? Like, that, that ought to, like, do the job, right? Well, I get there, and uh, we settle our bags in our rooms, and, and then we have a couple of hours before we're going to have dinner in silence with the monks, which is every bit as weird as it sounds. And so I decided I'm going to go for a walk in the woods to just kind of like begin to pray and, and to try to reconnect. And man, I'll never forget, like I, I go to, out to the trail in the woods, and almost immediately my, my mind just feels like gripped by these thoughts and feelings about an experience that I've been having with somebody in my life. And what it is is that, is that a particular housemate of mine has not been great. So it's one of the people I was living with at the time, and I'm walking through the woods, and I wasn't trying to choose these thoughts. I didn't go out there to nurse a grudge, but I found as, as I cleared everything out and began to listen to what was going on inside me that I actually felt really, 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 really strongly about the fact that this person had not been great. They hadn't lived up to their part of the bargain. They'd been a little bit hurtful and a little bit negligent, and it really was driving me crazy. Right now, I'm not talking about like some dramatic act of absolute sabotage. I just mean the little ways that they seem to like lose sight of how we could live well together and, and be good to each other and the ways that I had trusted them to live up to their part of the bargain that they hadn't actually lived up to, right? Now, by the way, quick disclaimer, some of you know enough about my personal life that you might be trying to figure out which roommate I'm talking about. Let me just tell you, I've had like 40 some housemates in the last 15 years. So if you think you know who I'm talking about, you're probably right, but, don't, but just don't go there because that won't be helpful today, right? It's not about that, okay? But I, I was walking in the woods there, and I was, I was thinking I'm going to this place where I'm tro hoping to have this, this like, deep God experience, and I realized the thing that was most like, stirred up inside me, the thing that was most active within me when I turned in to pay attention to that was actually the feeling that most specifically is described not just as hurt, not just generic hurt, not just as anger, although there was some of that there too, but specifically betrayal, which is, you were supposed to be different. You were supposed to be someone I could trust. I, like, I get not everyone's going to live up to that, but you, you were, you were the kind of person and you were in a position in my life where I was counting on you to act a certain way, to be a certain kind of person, to do a certain thing, and you just failed me, and it really hurts. And maybe the betrayals that you've experienced aren't roommate life, but I suspect there are some parts of your story and some parts of your relational world where what has happened is somebody that you thought was safe wasn't safe, or somebody that you thought you could trust um, to be good to you ended up hurting you, 
Uh, maybe it's in your family system. So maybe it's the fact that mom or dad weren't there, maybe physically or maybe emotionally. And man, we would hope, right, that if there's anybody that you could expect to be safe, you would hope it'd be mom or dad, and then they weren't. Or maybe it was the fact that they were there, and they were there in all the wrong ways. And some form of abuse proved to be really, really hurtful to you. Maybe it's a brother or a sister. Maybe it's your kids. I don't know. Uh, maybe it's not in the family system. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's a place where you hoped there would be colle- collegiality, you know, since that we're all on the same t- team working for the same project. And work can be a really vulnerable place, right? Because your income is tied to it. The way that you care for your family is tied to that. And then when you feel unsafe in the workplace because somebody that you thought was on your team ended up stabbing you in the back or using you to get ahead, that can really, really hurt. Sometimes um, the place where betrayal lives the strongest is in communities like this. Because one might hope that a church would be a safe place. And yet we also um, know all too well that sometimes churches are places of betrayal where that trust isn't lived up to. It might be um, from a leader like me, or it might be just from a person who would sit next to you in the seats. Um, But I think if we're being really honest, a lot of us carry this experience in our lives, and today we want to turn toward it. I want to do that delicately and and tenderly. Uh, I don't want to be violent about that. I don't want to drag you to places that you didn't intend to go to today. And I even want to say that, like, right now, if, if the thing that you're thinking of feels really unsafe for you to turn to today, I actually, um, I would say, then I think that's actually okay. I'm, I'm giving you a pass right now. Because I don't think that we can force these journeys or rush them. But I do want to turn to this because I, I don't know how we can take Jesus seriously in his own experience without talking about betrayal. And I don't know how we can take seriously the idea of following him without looking for the the ways that our lives might rhyme with his own experience and see what we can learn from that. So um, it strikes me that in Jesus is what we call the passion of of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus, that it is saturated with betrayal. There's, of course, uh, the experience of Judas, his friend, his disciple, who's the traitor, who hands him over to the authorities, right? But I, I think the betrayal is actually bigger than that. And it's all of his friends run away from him at one point in the story. And even like the crowds themselves are traitors of sorts. Let let me take you into the story a little bit. This is Luke's telling of the passion of Jesus. I'm picking up in the middle of the story here, sort of as the trial is going on, where they're trying to get the authorities to condemn Jesus. And I just like look for the different ways that Jesus experiences the betrayal of this moment, right? So the chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. They dressed him in an elegant robe and they sent him back to Pilate. By the way, that day Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they'd been enemies. Sometimes, by the way, it can feel like uh, the whole world colludes in its enemy posture towards you when you get betrayed. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and he said to them, you brought me this man as one who is inciting the people to rebellion, but I've examined him in your presence, and I've found no basis for your charges against him. Neither is Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he's done nothing to deserve death. But the crowd's not happy with this. Therefore, I'll punish him and then release him. The whole crowd shouted out, away with this man. Release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Now, wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to this crowd. Now, by the way, before we read the next line, remember, 
This is probably the same crowds that just a few days earlier were celebrating Jesus, the same crowds that were laying down palm branches to welcome Jesus, the same crowds that were saying, Jesus, we like the fact that you've healed us, we like the fact that you have taught us, we like the way that you pushed against the authorities, we like the way that you have fed us when the crowds were hungry. And the, just a, a few days later, it's some of the same voices that are probably heard in that crowd who are shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And by the way, sometimes when you are betrayed, it can feel that insidious. It can feel that sadistic that like the voice points directly at you and says, I'm going to take you down. I'm going to come at you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, it, can, it can feel like a targeted effect sometimes, right? Uh, a little further. For the third time, he spoke to the crowd. Why? What crime has this man committed? I found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I'll have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand, and he released the man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. The more I've been meditating on this text, that line stands out to me, especially as it rhymes with our own experience of betrayal. So in, in this moment, there's this, this crowd that that wants to diminish Jesus, that wants to be done with Jesus, that wants to dispose of him, wants to throw him away, wants to end him. This, this violent energy that's coming at him. And there's this moment here where Jesus has surrendered to that, where his life is given over to that. And sometimes when betrayal happens, it can feel like your life, like who you are, your reputation, your identity, your worth, like who you are, it can feel like all of that's been given over to the, the hands of the people who are hurting you. Like, like they have the verdict over your life, right? Like they have power to diminish you, to make you small, to try to end you. It can feel that way. And I think that's part of where the energy comes from in our lives when we feel like we've been betrayed because these resentments stir up inside us that they were able to make us small, that they were able to claim to name us, that they were able to, in letting us down or in hurting us or in using a trusted position to come against us, it can feel like they had power over us. And that they use that power in the worst possible way. If you've ever been betrayed, you, you might have felt like your life was somehow given over to the traitor. And they got to make you small and have the final word about who you are. I think that can be where some of the dark, difficult energy of betrayal comes from. Now, I've been meditating on that moment where the text says that Jesus was surrendered to their will. And then on another moment, just a few verses later, and I've been holding these two experiences in tension because I think there's a possibility lurking within them. So there's that moment where Jesus is handed over to the crowd. There's another moment where Jesus seems to experience a kind of liberation. This is just a few verses later in verse 44. It was about noon and now Jesus is hanging on the cross and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon for the sun stopped shining. The curtain of the temple was torn in two and Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And the thing that's been working on me this week as I've been wrestling with my own experiences of betrayal is that so often when I feel like someone safe has hurt me or failed me, it can feel like my life was in their hands and they were able to diminish me, to try to destroy me, to make me small, right? But I don't think that's actually true. I mean, yeah, they, they can say mean things and it hurt and the hurt is real, but I don't think who you are, 
was actually ever in their hands. And there's this other experience that Jesus has, which is not that his life is being given over to the people who would make him small and destroy him, but that in the very same moment, he has the choice to give his life over to God. And perhaps to know that like, in God, his life was never under threat. In God, he could never be destroyed. In God, even death wouldn't be the final thing because resurrection was waiting for him. Like, like, I suspect that some part of the liberation waiting for us when we are betrayed is the discovery that they could never actually decide who you are. They could never actually destroy you because your life was given by God and your life is in God and your life can go back to God and your life is secure in God. So what could they ever do to you? Now, it can be hard to imagine how we could ever go from the crushing, defeating feeling that who we are has been destroyed by other people, to go from that feeling to the liberating knowledge that your life is held in God. And so your life cannot be destroyed or diminished by the people who failed you. It can be hard to imagine how you would go from one experience to the other. But of course, I've omitted something in the middle here, between the moment when the crowds think that they have him and the moment when he knows that the Father holds him. There's a moment between the two. There's something else that happens. And I actually think it's, it's this that unlocks our liberation from the way that we feel absolutely bound up by these betrayals. It's, um, it's a concept that might sound a little bit pious or predictable, but I hope we can be surprised by it, like kind of maybe can catch us off guard today. Like, like what is it? that liberates Jesus from the experience that his life is held by these people who would destroy him, and that carries him into the knowledge or the, the faith that his life is held by God who would preserve him. Like, what is it that liberates him from the one experience to the other? I think it's what lurks here in the middle, where we read about Jesus on the place called the Skull, crucified there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. What I want to propose today is that if you have been betrayed, if you still feel bound up by the way they failed you or let you down, that the act that might liberate you it might help you rediscover that your life was never actually subject to them. That who you are couldn't ultimately be threatened by them. The act that might actually liberate us is the act of forgiving them. Now, when we talk about forgiveness, it's important to clarify a few things. And we've done this before, but I, I want to do it again briefly here when I talk about forgiveness. First of all, I don't believe that forgiveness is about diminishing the wrong. I don't think forgiveness means pretending that what they did didn't hurt or wasn't wrong or wasn't unjust. I think the act of forgiveness actually names the wrong. Because if, if, if you're forgiving something, it means there was something to be forgiven, right? In fact, uh, it's often when we sort of ignore these things that I think we're actually in danger of diminishing or running or ignoring these things. Like, but the act of forgiveness names the wrong. It doesn't pretend it didn't happen. That's important to say out loud, okay? Uh, second, um, forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean that you stand in the way of the consequences of their act. That's really important, too. If we're going to have a just world, there, there have to be some consequences built into the world that we have today, right? I don't know that you're going to prevent them from experiencing all the consequences of their act. That's important to say out loud. Also, I don't think forgiveness is the same thing as trust or reconciliation. 
And there may be somebody who continues to be utterly untrustworthy and who has no place in your life who you could still forgive. And to forgive them would be to release that energy inside you which is fixated on your just right for vengeance. To just simply relinquish that energy and, and move beyond it. Now, um, I don't think forgiveness is often easy. I don't think it often comes fast. I think it's often both moment and process. Like you might decide to forgive someone and then realize that it's a long process to fully affect that in your spirit. Um, I think many of us might realize there's someone that we need to forgive and then we might have to say, all right, God, like I, I'm gonna need some help with that. It might take a lot of prayer, it might take a lot of time and that's okay, I think. Um, but I don't think that we're gonna get very far if we don't turn our attention to forgiveness. Now, I don't know about you, but it can also feel like to forgive someone is like trying to, to relax a muscle that you didn't know that you were clenching, right? Uh, to let go of a grudge can feel like, well, I'm not the one holding the grudge, the grudge is holding me. You ever felt that way? I, I felt that way often. So I don't know how I let go of something that I didn't know that I was actively holding, it feels like it's holding me, right? But I think there's a little, a little key hidden in the way that the scriptures repeatedly talk about forgiveness. So let me show you, for example, a little survey of three different places where the New Testament talks about forgiveness. You'll notice a commonality in all of them. Uh, here, these are all in letters that Paul has written, or sorry, the first one, this is Jesus teaching us how to pray. And he says, when you pray, you could pray, God, please forgive us our debts. And then he says, as we also have forgiven our debtors. We go a little further uh, into the letters that Paul has written in Colossians. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And again, we read, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Now, last week we talked about the experience of conviction and sin and repentance. And it's not accidental that now, this week, we're talking about the need to forgive other people. Because it seems that like one of the deepest insights of the New Testament is that our capacity for, to, to forgive, our mandate to forgive is connected to the knowledge and experience that we've been forgiven. Now, I don't think this means that you have to find complete moral common ground with the person that hurt you in the way that they hurt you. I don't think this means that there's necessarily an equivalence between the things that you might feel convicted about in your own life and the things that somebody else has done. I don't think that's the point. But I do think that it's people who experience that they are the recipients of forgiveness that slowly find themselves able to let go of the grudges that feel like they are holding us. And it seems that the more we are aware of our own need to live in grace, the more we are able to sort of share that current, to sort of pass on that gift to other people who need it too. And so I would just say like, I, I don't know that we get around this, I don't know that we get to give up on it because it seems that our experience of forgiveness and our capacity to share that with others are somehow bound up together. Now, some people want to like explore the mechanics of this. Like, well, like, does that mean God won't forgive me if I won't forgive? Um, I'll say there are a couple of verses that actually kind of sound that way in the New Testament. I'm not sure that God is as mechanical about that as we are, but I wonder if perhaps our own experience of forgiveness, our own consciousness of it, the, the way that we enter into it is connected to the ways that we share that with one another. Like, I don't know that forgiveness is something that you can hold like a commodity. It might be more like a current that we either swim in or we don't. And if you're swimming in that current, it's probably not just gonna hit you, it's probably gonna move through you to the people in your life 
who need forgiven, as much for your sake as it is for theirs, because we need liberated from these grudges that shrink us, that make us feel small. We need to find ourselves able to go into that wide open place that Jesus finds himself in when he says, God, I'm not surrendered to the crowds, I'm surrendered to you, and we will endure. Uh, There's this other moment um, where Jesus is talking to his friends about forgiveness, and there's his teaching on forgiveness, and then there's their response to it that I find also helpful to meditate on in this thing that we're talking about today. So in Luke 17, Jesus says, even if your brother or sister, by the way, notice the language of one of your own, right? One of your people. If your brother or sister sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. So there's that teaching, right? You've got to learn to let this go. And then there's the disciples' response that on my first reading, it feels really pious to me, but the more I've sat with it, the more profound it seems. They say simply this, Lord, increase our faith. Now, when I read the word faith in the scriptures, uh, I don't think of that word the way I used to. It used to first and foremost represent uh, a body of ideas in my head, a bunch of propositions or concepts. And uh, by the way, I'm in favor of propositions and concepts. I just don't think that's the center of faith. Uh, Sometimes you might read this as like some sort of pious moment where you made a decision. Faith might be the word for like the box that you check on a survey for whatever like cultural identity that you have, like denominationally or whatever, right? But in the scriptures, the more that I read about faith, the more I read about a trusting surrender or encounter with the expansive life of God that you are finding your own life more and more rooted in. And so Jesus says like you've got to forgive and the disciples say, Okay, but Lord, like, like, help us walk more deeply into that expansive life which is in God. Like, that's where forgiveness lives. And when I see Jesus handed over to the crowds where they would try to diminish him and destroy him, and I see Jesus finding his own life expanded and enlarged because what's next for him is resurrection, right? Which is the fullest, largest, most enduring kind of life that you can experience. Between those two is forgiveness, which I think is the way that he maintains his own experience of connection to that larger life in God, which has never been threatened by anything that anybody could do to him or to you and me. When I was on that retreat, I went there um, sincerely yearning for a life more deeply rooted in God. Feeling a little without an anchor, feeling a little bit like I was drifting, a little bit like I was disoriented in the world. And I, I went there longing for that experience of life more deeply rooted in God. And at first, I was so confused and frustrated that in that space, I felt so distracted by this feeling of betrayal that was choking off my life. And then later, I came to look back on that and realize it makes total sense that if God wanted to honor my request and lead me into that larger experience of life in him, that he might have to turn my attention to the sense of betrayal that I would have to let go of and overcome. And so today, um, as we prepare ourselves to come forward to Jesus' table, I think we ought to ask ourselves whether there are any betrayals that have wounded us, marked our story, and they feel like they've made us small, it feels like they've diminished us, feels like they've threatened us. And I don't mean to say they didn't hurt. No, they, they might have really hurt, legitimately. Um, and I don't mean to say today that we can just 
snap a finger. If we were good enough Christians, we could just forgive just like that. It might be a process. It might be really hard. And today, the most honest prayer that you could pray might be, I'm not ready, but God, maybe at some point you can help me get ready. That, that might be a good starting point. For others, it might um, simply be the bravery to name a betrayal that we've ignored for a very long time, even though it's still with us. And for others, we may find that we are actually in a place as we come to the table to say that even as we have been forgiven, we are ready to forgive. I want to give us just a moment with some questions, we'll create a little bit of space, and then we'll come back up and uh, lead our community to the table. But let's sit with these for a moment. Have you been betrayed? Is there anybody who should have been safe who wasn't? Anybody you trusted who proved not to be trustworthy? Is there anything that's been done to you that needs forgiven? And is there anyone you need to forgive? Let's sit with those for a moment before we come to the table. There's another line from one of those letters that Paul writes that the church often invokes when we come to the table and it strikes me that it's especially fitting today because for 2,000 years, Jesus communities have gathered and been with one another and looked each other in the eye and reminding one another that it was on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he took a loaf of bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. And then that he took a cup and he said, this is the cup of a covenant, of a promise. Today I hear this as God's reminder that in Christ, nothing about you can be threatened in the end. That who you are, your deepest, most important level, like is held by God and cannot be diminished or destroyed by what anybody else would do because the love of God can sustain you even beyond those things and draw you out into a wider, more open space. So loving God, I pray that these would be for us today, the life of Jesus given for the world. I pray that we would discover in Jesus in the path that he walked, in the death that he offered, and in the new life that you raised him up to, that we could never have been destroyed by the things they said, but that you too would sustain our lives and tell us who we are, and that you would give us the power to forgive. So we thank you for these gifts. We receive them with gratitude. I pray that you'd make us brave and tender. And perhaps as we come to the table today, to lay down these wounds of betrayal, that you might lead us into that enduring and expansive life. I pray these things through Christ. And we all said,